to a new roadblock. It's fake democracy. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop. Critics of a secret wars. They can't expose them all. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop. All right, welcome to Cake Watch, the podcast about Brexit and cake, and I am sat here in the kitchen of Laura Shields, and I'm eating raw vegan cookie dough. And but you have just had a kebab. And I have just had a kebab. One of the most exquisite kebabs that I've ever eaten, thanks to the hipster Syrian refugee kebab place around the corner. They're not refugees, they're from Etabeek. Oh, well, they might be refugees from <laughs> Etabeek. No, so just for a slightly random... They're actually Aramaic. Do you know Jesus was Aramaic? I, well, I knew he spoke Aramaic. Well, Jesus was Aramaic. I believe he was actually well, there from are, heaven. Jer- well, uh, well, Jesus was Belgian, according to my son's friend today. But anyway, no, Jesus was Aramaic. And they're a sort of people rather than a place. So they're largely from Syria. So the cuisine is Syrian. But the apparently the third largest Aramaic community in the world is in Etabeek in Brussels, which is our next door commune. Uh, the second largest is in Melbourne, and the first is in Syria. So we have the third largest Syrian Aramaic population in the world. Well, thank God for Brussels. that. Because, and they make yummy food. Because they make the most fantastic kebabs, yeah. and I can absolutely endorse their kebabs. You, me, some kebabs, some vegan cookie dough. Mm. Brexit doesn't get more exciting than this. A little this. bit of Prosecco has been consumed. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. So, um, look, this is a, this is an odd... odd um, Cake Watch, um, because A, I haven't introduced myself yet. I'm Chris Kendall. I am an EU official, but that's not why I'm here, because I'm here in a strictly personal capacity. And with me is Laura Shields. Which, my... epi- which episode were you on? I was in the Citizens' Rights one. Which number was that? I don't know. <laughs> I can't even remember which this We're 34. So I'm supposed to file it in my brain. <laughs> I have not done that. I don't know, early. Um, my mum probably knows which episode it was. Back in June. Yeah, it was ages you, We ago. ate hummus. Yeah. God, we sound like wankers, don't we? <laughs> we are wankers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are we talking about tonight, Chris? Because well, not first much we're, has been first we're talking on. about why this is a bit odd. Um, and the reason Steve's it's not here. a bit odd is that we we did I did actually record um, the podcast last night with both Steves, with Steve Bullock and with Steve Analyst, and we spent four hours recording the podcast. The Analyst Bullock. We had a tech. We had a tech problem. We had a technological problem. So what I'm hoping to do is. When I go back and edit this, if I still have the capacity to, to do it, um, we'll tag on at the end anything that we can actually salvage from last night's recording. Uh, it was all absolute gold dust, listeners, I can assure you. But, Basically, um, what actually Chris is trying to say is that I'm the sloppy second. Anyway. I think this is going to be a lot more fun because last night we were we were all quite sober and it was all quite serious and tonight... We're not We've got kebabs! So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two things. We're going to make this quite short and snappy. First, we're going to kill Norway. Yeah. We're going to Again. Kill. Yeah. This is where if I had, if we had copyright approval, this is where we'd be playing the Hall of the Mountain King from Peer Gint. Oh, would we? Oh, well, I, I would. surely out of copyright, surely. I don't know. Well, it's Norwegian though, isn't it? Yeah, but they're in the EEA, therefore they must abide by your EU copyright True. directives. Well, should we find that out? If anybody who's listening to this can find that out for us, let us know and then we'll play Peer Gint's Hall of the Mountain no, King we next won't. week. Okay. We won't, but you can pretend that we did. Okay. And then the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to do our fantasy front bench for the um, coming referendum 
uh, the people vote referendum. That will happen. That is going to happen. Yeah. So why don't we um, why don't we launch straight in? Are we not going to talk a lot at all about what happened yesterday? Or are you going to do that if you well, we already did resuscitate that with- Steve? <laughs> Rehydrate Steve from last night. Sorry, Steve. We can talk about it briefly and we can say how you feel about it. How do you feel about it? I mean, I'm in a good mood. As somebody who obviously wants a second referendum, I think that everything that needs to be done to pave the way towards that is happening. But that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to get what we need because I think the number of... If you have a fan chart or whatever it's called with all the possibilities moving from here on in, I still think it's an insurmountable task. But I think in terms of yesterday, the fact that Parliament showed some... Actually grew a pair. Yeah. Sorry, that's my considered opinion. And that also, you know, that Theresa May's government has been found in contempt and then the, the CJU advocates general's opinion i think all of this stuff is looking very upbeat for people who don't think brexit is a good idea but in terms of are we any closer to stopping this well we're further down the line but of course it's still rolling the rock up the hill how many metaphors and cliches can i stick into this god this is embarrassing i'm communications consultant i I was sat here watching you um you've literally just been sat at your kitchen table giving an interview to Euronews. I have. I watched them. The I was going to say the master at work, but you're not. Well, no, it wasn't really in that because I was looking angry and red faced. I just watched Falling Down with Michael Douglas in at the weekend, and mm. I wonder if some of that f- film was left with me. You were like you were unleashing your inner gammon. Well, I I was unleashing the gammon, except it's vegan famine. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, look, come on, Chris. We're going to spend half an hour with mindless waffle. Let's talk about. So we've done yesterday. So Norway, Norway is the thing that I think we've got to discuss because this is, for those of you who, well, of course you're all going to know why we're talking about Norway, but Norway or Norway Plus, so I guess what, Norway Plus Customs Union, Single Market Plus Customs Union, is rearing its head quite majorly now, which is the idea that's been put forward by Nick Bowles and supposedly... Uh, Steve Kinnock's really pushing it Stephen well. Kinnock, so a cross-party group. Apparently Oliver Letwin thinks it's a good idea. But basically when May's deal is voted down next week, we shouldn't say when because that will curse it to passing now, won't it? But if, May, if May's deal is voted down next week, then apparently these guys, are, uh, these MPs, this cross-party group of MPs are going to swoop with Plan B, which is Norway... Norway Plus as the fallback option, which is going to save the day. And, I mean, Chris and I have reservations about this, I think is the politest way well, to the, the, Chris, the, do you want to start with yours? Explain what Norway is for well, those... We, we, of course, anybody listening to this podcast will know what, what my reservations are because um, we had an entire episode on why Norway is a terrible idea. What number was that? Uh, I think it was 13. Unlucky son. Okay. But I'm going to rehash... Um, my reasons and my reasons are as follows and they are exactly the same reasons as Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson which is that it's a democratic outrage um, the, the, the the main problem with Norway which is a problem that the Norwegians themselves um, acknowledge, not only acknowledge but actively warned us about before the referendum is that you are stuck in a situation where you are taking laws that are made elsewhere and you don't have any genuine, meaningful input into those laws. But the difference is it would still be a heck of a lot better than what we have, that, what but the main deal. If you're comparing... I mean, let, let's, let's be fair to it for a moment, well, is that... You know, look, I mean, okay, 
But there are a lot of things that would be better than maize deal. For example, getting kicked in the head. The point is, <laughs> the point is, we don't need to go for a flipping Norway Plus. We could go for Remain. Right, but I agree with you. But let's just talk about Norway Plus for a moment. Like the, the reason why this is to have any mileage in the first place is because it's, it puts us in the single market. So you've got complete regulatory alignment, right? Okay, so the, the advantage of Norway Plus, I mean, we'll talk about the customs union component of that in a moment, because that's what the plus stands for. But Norway does mean free movement of people, which for people like you and me is actually quite symbolic and important politically and culturally, not just economically. But also, actually, in a hard-nosed way, it would protect the UK economy and jobs and also stop you know buffer brexit a bit more because the uk is massively dependent on free movement and not just in terms of old plugging gaps in the nhs or fruit pickers or anything along those lines but actually high quality british jobs in technology in engineering in services and it would give the uk some access to that so in that sense at a day-to-day level it's probably not a bad thing at all But in terms of the democratic deficit, I completely agree with Chris because the UK would still have to pay the massive exit bill. Actually, I shouldn't say exit bill. Settle its dues. Yes, exactly. It's not an exit. Pay for the programmes that it's already signed up to and then pay 10 billion plus a year with no say. Can you imagine how the sovereignty headbangers in the UK are going to take that? We'd start an EEA. We'd start a Norway exit movement on the day that we signed it. Um. You're right. That that that's my problem with it. My problem, yeah. Norway is Norway is attractive because uh, uh, most of the really nasty stuff that would happen under the May deal or 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 no deal would be mitigated. So there is that, um, and that's what it, and its advocates say. But you know, don't compare Norway to the May deal or to no deal. Compare Norway to what we have right now. That's what you should be comparing. Well, exactly. But also, it's this, it's this ludicrous idea. I mean, who is the Norway Plus deal designed to appease, apart from Remainers in Parliament, potentially, or sort of soft middle? Because Corbyn's not going to like it. You know, Labour's not going to like it because of the free movement and state aid implications. The ERG are not going to like it. I mean, and their consti- I'm talking also about the constituencies across the country. But the ERG aren't going to like it for the reasons that you've talked about. Like, why on earth would you you know, trade the lesser, you'd keep the benefits, but you get none of the respon- you know, the rights with it. It's just bizarre. Well, I people, mean, who would be happy by the this? People this who like who it. thinks this is a good idea? The people who think it's a good idea are the people who don't have any respect for or, or interest in the EU's democratic institutions. They right. don't, Isn't it? Yeah, sorry. So they don't care about, for example, the fact that we have a European Parliament. They actually think that that's just a big talking shop and that that's irrelevant and that it, it, it cannot be meaningful, deliver meaningful democracy anyway. They they say, well, no, you know what? The EEA, the EEA has established uh, mechanisms for influencing EU legislation which are enough. Well, okay. I dispute that, and I, I don't need to go into details why I think that that's completely wrong. In my experience, the EA does not influence EU legislation in a meaningful way. Oh, no, I know. What they want is the freedom that Norway has to go beyond EU trade deals, and to for this they have to be outside the customs union. But they think they would be outside the customs union because they think that the Norway deal would end up providing the kind of um, uh, arrangement that would mean that the backstop could be wouldn't be invoked, which 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 they're wrong about. But so so in their in their dream, they think that we're going to be um, um, negotiating and delivering 
a series of bilateral deals that mean that the UK would have freer trade with various international partners than the EU does. That this is this is fantasy fiction. This is fantasy fiction because a the UK wouldn't have the leverage that it does as part of the EU to get those fantastic trade deals, and b the EU is already you know so far and away ahead of the crowd when it comes to bilateral trades. There are there, okay, look, okay, I acknowledge that there are. Um, the Norwegians, the the, um, the 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 Chileans, to a certain degree, the, the New Zealanders have gone even further in, in in a limited way on tariffs and so on. But that's because they can, because they've got a very sort of unique sort of kind of market arrangement where they can do that. Um, the UK is not like that, and the UK is not going to be able to do that. So it, it, I think it's pure pure fantasy on the part of these, I mean, and, they, and they tend to be very kind of slightly, uh, and I apologise for the, the politically incorrect term, but slightly autistic people who are very focused on a very narrow understanding of what trade agreements mean, and they don't look at the bigger picture of what EU membership offers. And, and I... The other thing I was going to say, though, and I don't know whether this will put people off, is that the EEA countries pay a huge amount into the EU for the social projects as well, which is the kind of thing that drives a load of people who are pro-Brexit crazy. They don't want to be paying for Romanian, you know, dance troupe NGOs. Right. So we'd be paying into the EU budget more than we are. Trouble for saying that, aren't I? Yeah, you are. It was a slightly um, racist. Yeah, you were. You were a very bad person for saying that. But um, you're. Pay, I mean, the Norwegians pay more per capita into the EU budget than yeah, the UK does. but that's because there's only about three of them. Well, it's also because they're super rich and we're not. But, um, but anyway, the, 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 the point is we will not um, cease to pay into the EU budget, but we will cease to have a say on how that budget is spent. So if you think that that's a good idea, then, I mean, I have a bridge to sell you because I really honestly don't see how that is going to do anything but continue to feed the fires of Europhobia in the UK. Exactly. So if I were advising anybody listening to this programme to take action on this, I would be writing to your MP, hypothetically, if you have an MP who thinks Norway is a good idea or is on the fence, I would be writing to them, hypothetically, of course, because we can't really advise that on this programme. Of course we can. Well, I would be right, write to them and tell them that you think it's a really bad idea because of the sovereignty implications and that it will yeah. achieve nothing. And whilst it might look great at a day-to-day level, it won't fix any of the problems, and it will cause an, a huge. It won't. This argument won't go away. It won't go away if we remain either. But at least we'll be remaining with a say. We'll yeah. have more, you know, exactly. move from a position of strength. This really is vassal state. It is one of the areas where really I agree is. with Jacob Rees. Really and the Norwegians, as Chris said, are on the record as saying we would yes. hate it. Yeah, the, the Norwegian, Norwegian government center. wants to be in the EU. Has, historically, yes. Norwegian governments have wanted to be in the EU, and it's the Norwegian people who have rejected it, and that's absolutely fine. But what? the Norwegian government... No, because it's their decision, isn't it, Chris? It's the people's decision. Well, unfortunately, they seem to follow the crazy notion that, um, that referendums are, are a good way of making complex policy. So, um, All right. Anyway, anyway the, we're speaking of which, as we move on to the idea of another referendum... Well, look, bottom line... Um, Norway, um, people will try to sell you EEA, plus, EEA, Norway Plus as a compromise. It's not a compromise. It, there's no, nothing compromising about it. All, 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 all that will happen is that you um, prolong this horrible internal rift in the UK between those who think that we should be out and those who think we should be in. We'll just be in some limbo. And one final point before we move on, because I think we've exhausted this conversation a bit. Um People who say, oh, let's go to Norway for a bit and then we can always rejoin later. Let's just think about that for a moment. If the UK leaves, 
does EA for a bit and then tries to reapply, that means we lose the rebate. We we lose the opt outs on Justice at Home Affairs. Oh, I hate this argument. No, but it's true. I hate this argument. But it's true. If we leave and we go to Norway, we lose that stuff. Yeah, and then but we try good, and come so back we in. should. I yes, hate but this that's argument. my point. I'm just saying that this is why don't use Norway as a temporary halfway house to move out and well, then that, try that, and come that, back that in. For me, is an argument for Norway. Why? Because we should leave those blo- lose those bloody things. It's just British extroverts. It's just British exceptionalism. Yes, but the, if, look, Chris channel this be strategic not tactical if you want people to want to bat this and they're the kind of people who like to think we're special then we need to keep the I argument. don't want I think those people need to have the special knocked out of them alright should we move on yes ok people's vote right this is our fun bit because we we are uh, we've got Brexit fatigue yeah so anyway I went to buy the kebabs while you sat down and made your fantasy yeah, front bench list so, so I don't have a fantasy front bench list because I, I was so, too busy looking at the menu so this is another thing so Nick Bowles for those of you on Twitter today the MP was saying that there was something fishy about the idea of a second referendum campaign fishy was his word because it was probably going to be the likes of Mandelson Blair and Alistair Campbell you know m- you know pulling the strings again and this is one of the debates that I think we've had quite a lot in our group of sort of acquaintances and maybe a bit online but that if there was another campaign if there was another referendum who would we want to see speaking for it so i suggested we do our people's vote fantasy spokespeople team it's quite catchy i you know i think people will really take to that and we've got some political ones but we've also got some normal people i think as well no, but you know what I mean, non, non-political, well, I do. Yeah. So, shall I start then? Yes. Okay, because you still need to think of yours, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going for Kieran, the Euro courier, mm-hmm. as my first. I would like to see him on my front bench in a People's Vote campaign, because for those of you who don't know him, Kieran, the Euro courier, is exactly that, which is basically he runs a courier company where they drive in and out of Europe every day doing last-in-time, just-in-time deliveries. It's not quite the same as just-in-time supply chains, but all over Europe, regularly in several European countries in one day, doing deliveries, needs to be in a customs union, probably needs to be actually in the single market more realistically because he's a service provider. Yeah. No, no, he needs frictionless trade. Yes. He so does. he needs to be in the EU. Yes, he does. But he's also a normal person. And no, but... he can also speak truth to power and he can tell Jacob Rees Mogg and Daniel Hannan exactly what it's like when you're oh. waiting to go into Switzerland, for what's example. It, what's interesting about Kieran is that he is um, a self confessed white man van. White van man. So basically he breaks the stereotypes, people. Yeah. So, right, so... Uh, he he's a great he's a great person to have. Okay, um, so Kieran, he's my number he would be on my list. Okay. I would like my well, chair. Hang on a minute. No, my what, turn. all right. Jeez. Um so a normal on, person. On my list, a normal person. She's quite posh, but she's a normal person. That's you. Oh, for God's sake. You're so You're just eating. You can buy me a kebab and you can do that kind of thing. I'm not that easy to press on. Why? Because we all saw your interview with Sky the other day um, when Adam Bolton walked into a wall of, wall of talk. A wall of shields. A wall of, a wall of Laura. The Laura wall. Yeah, but you haven't seen my Euronews one yet. <laughs> no, I haven't. But the, 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 the Sky one... Um, was that, was that, I mean, it was it was great. So what what's um, the reason I uh, think that you should be taking uh, quite a front, quite a forward position in you can't think uh, of future else. referendum, is because I think that you are extremely good at articulating the benefits of free movement. Okay. 
Okay, so there you go. I think you should be on it. Well, I was actually going to nominate my chair, Jane, from British <clears throat> in Europe, because Jane doesn't look like an angry ham on TV, which I think I do a lot of the time. I mean, it's very nice of you to say that, Chris, and I don't know it lightly, but our chair, Jane, is fantastic. She's a lawyer. She sets up British in Germany and British in Europe, I mean, with some other people as well. But Jane who? She, Jane Golding. Mm-hmm. She's not on social media, so you won't find her, but she's very calm. She sees all the issues. She can get angry. She's got a very interesting personal story, which is that her husband, who's from East Germany, was one of the first German East Germans to go and do a stage in Brussels after the fall of the Berlin Wall. They have half German, half English children, but she's also just completely across the issues. And she does get angry, but she doesn't get angry in a way that's going to alienate her from... So we should have Nikki as well. I'm getting... Now we've... Well, you've got Nikki, we've got too many yes, people. you could have Nikki. Nikki, but this is getting very citizens' rights focused. Yeah. It can't just be that. I mean, the point is, you know, when people ask me about citizens' rights, and actually when I tell them about British in Europe and the three million... They are actually upset at a personal level for us because even if they voted for Brexit, they don't think it had to be like that. And I genuinely think a lot of people who voted for Brexit do feel that way, regardless of the queue-jumping rhetoric and all the rest of it. But actually, as an exercise in deception on the part of the British government, I think a lot of people are really angry about that, which is that, quite simply, our rights have not been protected. And so in that sense, I think, you know, I'm going to... This is going to make me sound very cynical, but I think in a broader sense... The, the citizens' rights story is not just a story in its own right, but it's a story of the, like, the whole deceptiveness, deceptive and incompetent nature hmm. of the way in which Theresa May's government has done Brexit. Okay, your turn next. Uh, Steve Bullock. The Bullock. You're not here, Steve. <clears throat> Steve's good because he's... Why? No, he's no good. Steve, Steve's good for a number of reasons. Steve is um, very clever. He's very articulate. He... Um, it looks like Dougal the dog. Real gift for um, getting right to the heart of the issue. He he he's a really good communicator and he's a natural. Um, Steve also has um, uh, a Sunderland accent. So uh, one of the bits that we <laughs> oh one of the bits that we lost last night. So we did a long recording last night, and one of the bits that we lost was was follow up because um, last the last uh, episode of Cake Watch was me and Ian Bond. And Ian Bond is is, is a fantastic. Um, academic, serious, um, knowledgeable expert uh, who is the foreign policy director for the UK's leading EU think tank. Reform, you know, exactly. <clears throat> but we got some feedback during the week. <laughs> One piece of feedback was, um, oh yeah, no, it was great, it was great. But we really miss Steve. And the reason we miss Steve is that um, uh, uh, he doesn't sound posh and he, 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 he sounds anti-establishment. And I, I thought this was hilarious, and, and Steve also thought this was hilarious because, um, well, um, okay, of the of the two of us, Steve and myself, listeners, I, I I I ask you to take hazard a guess as to which of us went to private school. Steve, Steve well, went to private. It wasn't school. me. Well, no, you didn't. You're scum of the earth. Yeah, he did. Yes. He'll kill me for saying that. It'll completely blow his credibility. But anyway. All yeah. right. Okay. So now, he was on us. He was not on an assisted place. But, okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm going for Eloise Todd next, who is the CEO of Best for Britain, which is a fearsome NGO, <clears throat> which is openly fighting for the you know second referendum with Remain on the ballot. They work with Hope Not Hate. They're genuinely grassroots. Eloise has, I mean, I'm not going to, Eloise is practically, you know, she would empathise with my raw cookie dough as well because she 
doesn't eat meat shouldn't eat uh, dairy and our, our sort of guilty secrets we're, are things we're like fried cheese yeah but also it. just what they've managed to do within the last year and I, I think that they are she, she's one of these old school proper campaigners who says this is what we're going to do and then tries to make that happen rather than just moving to where they think people want them to be they've achieved a lot they're sharp and feisty all the stuff they did are, you know the taking on the Daily Mail which was trying to invest you know make no, stupid they're... things about them they're completely on the case and also she's a woman which I approve of because there aren't enough women's voices in this whole discussion and she's from Hull she knows and no but she knows she grew up in a town which voted heavily for leave she knows a lot of people who voted leave she understands that and I think that's really important because those voices weren't represented she, she has absolutely and she played kicks blinder. ass she has absolutely played blinder. and Louise if you're listening yeah. we love you yeah, no, she right has, your she turn played um, is this the last member of the public or normal person I've got two more members of the public normal well, normal people the they're not members of the public they're just not politicos yeah, who's right yours? I'm going to steal one of yours who's dealing David Femi. Hennig oh you're stealing Femi yeah. oh we ruined that one okay <sighs> Femi go for it no Femi because I mean Femi say his surname Oluwolo okay there you go uh, Femi um well, I mean, you know, what can you say about the guy? I mean, he's he's amazing. He he has, but he needs to slow gal- down, Femi. If you're listening, he's galvanised the the youth. I think he he's done a, a terrific job of representing the youth, and he is also he has an incredible capacity to be patient with idiots and then come in with a killer blow in a way that I couldn't do. I would just get too angry. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't cope. But actually also, you talk about him galvanising the youth. My friend who voted for Brexit, who I mentioned the last time I was on, who actually everyone's heard me talking about, I think Femi was instrumental in being part of the reason why my friend became a Remainer now. Hmm. Because he thought that he was polite, respectful. I don't mean that in an old-fashioned patting-on-the-head type way, but that he didn't. he was empathetic, he would listen to people, he would listen to the reasons why they voted the way that they did. Yes, he would come in with a killer argument, but he was always polite about how he yeah. did it. And I think this friend of mine who voted to leave and has changed his mind since, one of the things that actually bonded us in all of this was that we felt that the country was so polarised and it was all getting really ugly. So we needed to talk to each other. Mm. But also that people like Femi are the kind of people who can at least strike, you know, with, with normal people, find yeah. that common ground. And I think that's so important because the media and a lot of the extreme politicians would have us believe that the country can't talk to each other yeah. about this. And actually, if there is another referendum, the campaign has to show that people can come together. Even if we don't like the result, we have to be able to come together. <clears throat> no, I, I agree. I think he's terrific like that. And um... But he needs to slow down. Please, Femi, slow down. Yeah. I love you, but you need to slow down. Right, who's next? David Hennig. Right. He's great. So basically we're just doing the back catalogue of this podcast. Is it? Has he been on? Oh, I didn't realise that. Okay. It's a bit inside baseball. All right, let's move on to politicians now. No, hang on. Because David Hennig's great. He knows everything about trade and he sounds normal. What about Dimitri... But he's not in the UK. Grozabinski? What was that? Nor are we. Huh? Nor are we. No, no, but is he going to come over for the campaign? Does he have to? Is he British? I don't know. I don't know. Does it matter? You could ask him. Well, listen, I believe he's Australian... I, I, I understand that the other lot Chloe. have an Australian... <laughs> Glowfax Chloe versus Dimitri. Is she still around? Oh, let's not talk about her. Your best friend. She's not worth talking about. Okay. Um, okay, let's move on to what, who's next? Politicians. So, oh, okay. You know what we haven't done? We haven't done all the Remainer Nows. Oh, and the Remainer Nows, of course. So Dammy, 
Yeah, and um, you know, and yeah, all that lot. Emma. Yeah, and that lot. The ones whose names you can't remember because you've had two glasses of wine. Okay. That lot. And also, actually, Andy, who runs Remain. Oh, now. definitely. Like, he no, 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 but he won't want to roll. No, but he, he can do a lot brilliant. of it. No, he can have Mar- a back, Did you know he's from Mar- Patch? I don't know it very well. We have a we have a walk in Burnham Beaches scheduled. When? We keep postponing it. Well, it was two months ago. We keep postponing it. We do it at Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Andy, if you're listening. It's a date. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. Right. Politicos now, because no one's interested in this anymore. We're not David Baddiel and Frank Skinner. Right. Actually, who would you be? Would you be the Frank Skinner? I don't know. Anyway, all right, so MPs. I don't don't know and I don't We haven't done any, like, people like JK Rowling, but I think they're going to get off with it anyway. Are we going to do... Do you want to do celebs? No, I don't want to do celebs. I'm sick of celebs. It's the 90s. Let's do politicians now. Okay, so this is the other thing. I don't want... um, Let's do who we do want, not who we don't want. Who do you want? Name it. Free association. Well, um, Caroline Lucas, obviously. Obviously. Alan Smith. Leila Moran. Um, Seb Dance. Seb, definitely. Definitely Seb Dance. Molly. Molly, for sure. Judith Curtin Darling, actually. I love Judith. But who in Westminster are we going to do? Mike Gapes. He he did a very good piece in. Debunking Norway. Very good piece. Anna Subri. I do like her. Anna, definitely. But do you think she's not a little bit too. Now she's she's too much associated with one. I mean, she she's fantastic for our crowd, but she's yeah she's she's not seen as a. And I mean, she she's not seen as a a, a a party that could. She's not somebody who'd reach necessarily reach out to to leavers. I don't know. I think she could. I think people like uh, Dr. Philip Lee and, and Sarah Wollaston. I mean, both of those would be fantastic. Because Why couldn't them. Anna though? Well, Anna is so angry, which is what I love about her. But she's she's like she's one of our she's us. She's like our shock troop, but she's mm. not kind of. Um, She's not the fifth column. But she knows she's how to scold trip. people, and I think that's quite important. Yeah, yeah. She's not afraid of Nigel Farage. Yeah. Nicola Sturgeon. Definitely. Well, I mean, God, you know, most of the SNP uh, presence in Westminster would I be know. fantastic. Unpopular in Scotland in many parts, but loved in Wandsworth. Yeah, yeah very much, yeah. yeah. Okay, anybody else? Um, I like Catherine Bearder. Nicola Soames. But would he? Don't know, but he'd be a great. He'd be great. He was for, brilliant last time. He'd be great for slagging off the Farages and the Johnsons yeah. and so on, wouldn't he? Do you remember what he said to Daniel Hannan? Oh, sit down, you silly. Daniel ha- no, no. So, so this is Daniel Hannan tweeted something during the last campaign, where he, sh- he tweeted some picture of cherry blossom. He said, "Truly, oh. ours is a marvelous country." Oh, is he and Soames, Soames tweeted back, "Well, stop buggering about with it." Then. <laughs> and I think then got blocked. Well, he's not on the front bench. He's gone quiet recently, hasn't he? Not quite rightly so, because the guy's been constantly... Everything that he says has been right. exploded. I mean, he's awful. So this is our front bench. I think if this finished? piece goes out, isn't it? I just want to keep going. Any other MPs? It's bound to be. I don't want any lords. I haven't sat down. Right, who have we missed off this list? Well, tweet tweet like, Chris. People like Simon Fraser, Peter Ricketts. Uh, a lot of no, but come on, these guys are important because are they, they're experts. They know what they're talking about. Yeah, but do you remember nobody likes experts? Don't 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 go down that road. Come on, that's ridiculous. Okay. We need experts. We I do. Mean, you know, we more women. Um, Who's a woman? Well, I already mentioned you and Caroline and all. Yeah, but I'm not an people. expert. And like um, uh, experts. Um, exactly. Oh yeah, thank you. I think well, there's bound to be loads. Um. 
Oh, I quite like Justin Greening as well. Yeah, if she, you know, if she, if she. Well, I mean, we need we need cross party, so we need. Um, we need another Lib We need people. We've got Layla and Catherine. We need okay. When I say cross party, we need Tories and we need Labour. That's yeah. who we need, unfortunately, because of our stupid system. That's who we need. You know, mm. it'd be lovely if we could rely on the Green Party and the SNP alone, but we can't. No. Right. So, on that note... Yeah. Anybody else? What else do we want to talk about? I think that's it. Let's stop. So, Chris here, during the edit, what had happened was Steve Analyst had joined us, Steve Bullock and myself, for a long discussion of the events of Tuesday in the House of Commons. This was on Tuesday evening. And uh, due to a technical problem, we lost the first half of our recording. So, we're going to rejoin the recording... Uh, in the middle of things, in medias res, as, they would, as Homer would have said, and Virgil, I don't know. Anyway, here we go. Yeah, so so what's really important about this is that we, I think we had one vote before that went against Brexit in terms of making an amendment, but this is the first time that we've seen both, both Brexiters and Leavers voting against a, a something in Parliament that's to do with Brexit and, and historically if you voted against Brexit that was it, that you were a traitor to the people and that you were going against the <laughs> referendum and this is the first time when people have voted in Parliament to say no, this, this is not something that we want, this is not anything that we want to go through and this, would be the, this is the first time that we've seen action against something in Brexit that is you know, actually not going to be seen now as something that's Anti-Brexit. So this is this is a, this is a turning point. This could see we could see Parliament now voting. We might be able to see Parliament voting now against certain things, where it is not just assumed then that this is against the will of the people. Yeah, because it's become a kind of Parliament against the government thing, rather yeah, than yeah. pro anti-Brexit thing. Yeah, and that yeah, once the once if once you've done something once and it's worked and the world hasn't fallen in. You know, it's like defying a whip. Defying whips. You know, you see MPs that defy mm. whips regularly. Once they've done it a couple of times, they do it. They do it all the time. You know. Yeah. Uh, because so I think like okay, right. Well, nothing's going to happen as a as a result of this. This may well, empower remainers generally. What's interesting about today is uh, one thing that I found particularly interesting is looking at people like Dominic Grieve, um, who have so clearly been burned. In previous outings, yeah, um, that now they seem to be very much hardened uh, and ready to resist, um, just at the moment when we needed them to. So that, that's that's an interesting and important development, it seems to me. Um, and that then comes at the same time as this whole um, rather serendipitous coincidence of events you've got the advocate general's advice you've got the contempt ruling which didn't have didn't have to happen right now um and you've then also got the beginning of the debate on on the withdrawal bill with um with the grieve amendment coming forward at the same time and and they reinforce each other that it's it, you, you see this sort of cumulative um move towards a hardening of positions are within within those opposing yeah. the government's position on Brexit, and we've had te- we've had tests of who's really willing to rebel. You know, yeah. there's always been the suspicion, particularly after the last the Withdrawal Act 
withdrawal bill stuff about whether re- whether people will re- will really rebel, will Labour really vote against things, uh, yeah. and all that. And I mean, the answer for Labour is certainly a ye- certainly yes. Len Corbyn was clear Labour were going to vote against the bill as well. But more importantly, we saw other we saw Tory rebels actually yeah. put it, really putting really really putting their money where their mouth well, is, and, and voting, voting no confidence in the government and voting for the grieve grieve amendment against the government. And, and this is this is yeah, and this is this is new. This is I think this is quite significant, and also it, it it's the result of the government's incredibly poor handling. Oh, completely, yeah. It, they, they, they've they've made the they've radicalised these people. <laughs> yeah. didn't, I mean, Dominic Grieve is not easily yeah. radicalised. Yeah, it was it took quite a lot to get him to this uh, point. You know, I yeah. mean, so. It's it's really a very interesting day and a very interesting development, and you could say there's a lot of pigeons coming home to roost. Um, and let's see, let's see. I mean, let's see where we go with this, but it certainly feels significant. For me, for me, the significance is that the the government has constantly pushed this line um, that if you vote against the withdrawal agreement, you're voting for no deal and chaos, and you're or you're or you're enabling that, you know. And they've tried to scare MPs about this. Um, and it's a valid concern for MPs. You know, MPs are taking a lot of stick about uh, about this. I mean, Ken Clark has said that he simply can't countenance anything that might increase the chances of no deal, even an iota, you know, and therefore mm. we have to accept it. And he's got a lot of stick for that. And I, I would still urge MPs to not vote for something that they think is bad for the, for the country. I think that's the nature of MPs voting. But it's understandable that MPs are worried by that and that they'll be seen to have enabled it or that even they might feel that they have enabled it by voting against it. When you put all of these things together, um, this points away from, this really points away from that. In fact, I think it blows it out of the water, you know. You can stop Brexit. It can be revoked. That's a fact now. Uh, there is a route that can be taken with, these, with the amendments. We'll see if they're legally binding or not and so on. We, there's still questions about them. But they could potentially make the future future motion uh, that it can direct the, as we said, that it can direct the government. So, so MPs who vote against it are not doing it not doing it blind, throwing everything throwing everything up in the air and hoping that uh, stuff happens. There's now a, there's now a clear line, a clear clear plan, a clear route that can be that can be taken after they after they vote against it. And the no confidence motion, I think you. you dead right, Chris, is that, you know, they've treated Parliament with contempt. The government's treated Parliament with contempt all along, and Parliament's not having it anymore. And Parliament institutionally is, bite, is biting back and taking back, contr- and taking back control of itself. Mm. And, um, and, yeah, I mean, that comes back, back to bite the government, I think. Um, yeah. So I think we're in a much more optimistic position. I think the arguments, the, the arguments that have been deployed by the government of, of really falling away, that we can't revoke it or we won't revoke it, um, <clears throat> and that you're voting for chaos and all that. And let's remember as well that it is a conscious choice by a government to allow this to, to allow no deal to happen. That's yes. what we've learned. That yeah. um, the government can choose to ask for an extension. Might not be successful, but it can choose to ask for an extension. It can choose to revoke Article. It can potentially choose to revoke Article 50 or at least bring a. Uh, bring a motion to the House, to bring a uh, ask the House to agree to give them the authority to do that. Uh, yeah. It could legislate for a people. It could bring legislation for a people's vote and ask for an extension. So 
you know, there's this, this idea that they're an innocent bystander and if MPs vote this down, poof, there's nothing we can do, it's no deal. It's total mm. bullshit. It's really, really absolute bullshit. Yeah. We have to hold their feet to the fire on this. An act of omission in this case is an act. And it's a conscious choice that they yeah. think the political consequences for them of not avoiding no deal is more important than the awful consequences that would the population of the UK would suffer as a result of no deal Brexit. Um, and that's, uh, it, you know, it's up to them to make that decision, but that's a calculus there so that they would be making, and that's the trade-off they would be making. So we have to get that, I think we have to get that out there. I think that's really, really important, um, that they're not an innocent bystander here. Yeah. So one interesting thing that, that, that this means is that um, we've, we've been confronted this morning with the Advocate General's advice and, and all of a sudden we're feeling almost hopeful. We're thinking, oh my God, actually there could be a route out of this. And then suddenly leads me, for example, to think, oh gosh, um, what would that actually mean for the EU? You, if could, the you couldn't UK... just have one day, could you, of just happiness going well. <laughs> no, no but I mean, I think you it's had, quite you important. Had to, you had to, you, you, you had to bring in, you had to bring in the, the EU into it, didn't you? And well, you, you're the one that said, you're the one that said negotiated return earlier on. So that's that's the question. It's like, yeah. So what what so, what, what do you think that what 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 do you think EU twenty seven are thinking, looking at all of this, including the advocates general thing? The, the press thing, you know, there's this thing put about all the time that the EU are trying to keep us in and they're desperate to keep us in. They're desperate to keep us in the single market and they're desperate to keep us in the customer union and so on. And this isn't, this isn't really, this isn't really, tr but this isn't really true at this point, is it? I mean, I think that E27 are relatively ambivalent about whether we leave or remain now. They just want it to be, they want it to be non-chaotic and disastrous. It, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't surprise me if the EU Parliament wanted us to leave, like just wanted us out. Um, but you've then got the EU um, national parliaments wanting us to stay. That's that's what it, that that is that is how I would expect that to go. Because I hear a lot of people not, in the EU Parliament saying, "Well, it's time. You know, we need to move on. We're Europe. We're brilliant. We can go ahead." You know, and it's, I. It's, but it's neither. Put frankly, it's sort of neither's business because it's up to because it's all up to council and the parting member state. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. and I think that's that's. I think that when it comes down to the, the economy and it, when it comes down to domestic policy, then that's where that's that's where the you know there'll be there's some politicians in the EU that actually see this as as a you know something that's damaging for the EU while the EU while this is going on, but I think the domestic the, the people responsible for the domestic side are probably more concerned about other things you know like jobs yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in the way, you know, the, the EU Parliament isn't supposed to be worried about. They're supposed to be worried about making efficiencies and, and you know, making a market and stuff. But, you know, there's, there's people in domestic that, that but no, really but the, are... I mean, but the point, but the point, but I mean, the, the, the point is, I mean, the point is, do the member states, governments, you know, actually, will they be happy that the UK has a, a way out of this, Chris? I mean... Listen, I, it, it, look... Um, there are numerous configurations, numerous stakeholders. This is complex. Um, and most of those complex, that complex web of stakeholders are going to be feeling very ambivalent. They're going to be feeling both things. On the one hand, what we're looking at, should the UK unilaterally 
uh, revoke its Article 50 notification, you're looking at a massive soft power soft power win for the EU. You're, you're looking at the EU um, demonstrating great resilience and great, great attractive power. And um, on, on paper, it's a, it's a super win. You're also looking at... Um, yeah, you've looked at a, a horribly disruptive and expensive and irritating process, but you're also looking at an ultimate outcome that is a lot better than it would have been had, you know, economically, and uh, the, a lot better than it would have been had the UK left you know, under but, any scenario. But don't from however, don't, don't from oh sorry, go on. Sorry. So, however, at the same time, you're looking at um, <laughs> you're not looking at a clean break. Maybe there was no such thing as a clean break in any case. But you're looking at... Um, you, there's no moving back to status quo ante. However, <laughs> legally, in well, many legally, ways, you legally, are. I mean, it, it, well, no, no, it is legally, a, it, legally, you are, according to yeah. the advocate. And, and what that then... What, polit- but politically, you're not. Politically, you're so, not. So you're, you're, then in, you know, you're then ending up with, um, with, with what many would consider to be a rather nightmarish scenario, which is that you've got a... a, a, a a large member state that can't leave, but it can't stay. <laughs> it's, it, it's riven. It, 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 it's going to be completely dominated by its own internal splits to a degree that even greater than it has been so far. So any kind of uh, future progress in the EU, any kind of move towards reform, towards uh, re- renewing the treaties, towards moving in any sort of direction, is going to be held hijacked to this... To, to, to this well, dysfunctional hostage, hostage to, to what happens in the UK as a result of this. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that this will then infect other um, countries. So I mean, there's a, I think that whereas had the UK just simply left, there it stands as an object lesson to other member states not to do the same thing, and also, you know, it's gone. So you know, you've got. Um, so we can get on with now. That. It, we can get on with stuff now. Yeah. Of course, y- y- you'd be super naive to think that. The only thing holding the EU back has been the UK, or is the UK, because that's obviously not the case. And the yeah. UK leaving, um, as, as I, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to present a picture of great ambivalence. There are <laughs> um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that David Cameron exploded a bomb in, in the in, in, not just in UK politics but in EU politics with his yeah. ridiculous referendum. And whatever happens, this is going to be. Uh, Super problematic whether we stay or go, leave or stay. I mean, I as a as a British Remainer, it's clear to me we need to remain. I mean that you know that that for, for the UK for for the, for the for the good of the people of the UK, that's what we need to be doing. But as 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 an as a European, as somebody who works in the EU, I think it's a much less clear picture, frankly. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't help you can't help understanding the ambivalence from 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 this yeah. this end. But I mean. Also, there's the domestic politics to think about as well. You know, leaders have to go back to the capitals and say, "Yeah, yeah." After all that, they're they're still here, and we've had them back. Or there's nothing we or there's nothing we could no, do. I mean, they'll be they'll be called for reparations. Something. I mean, you know, you were you were saying earlier, Steve. I mean, it's, it's, it's Steve analyst, we, um, and we should maybe come back to it now. The the issue of the budget and and, and the rebate. Ah. Now, legally, um, of course, it's correct. If 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 if, if the UK's Article 50 notification is withdrawn. The UK simply carries on being a member state yeah. it, with, with all existing 
uh, opt-outs and perks and rebates and so on. Politically, however, things are different. Now, th- politically, the other 27 can't, you, you know, can't force the withdrawal of the rebate on the UK. But they can put an awful lot of moral pressure on the UK saying, listen, you cost us this amount of money with your ridiculous adventure yeah. and now you're expecting us to give you even more back, you know. Um, uh, I think added to that, the rebates... So, yeah, on that, the the simple, the simple fact is that the UK would maintain a veto on the... We'll come back to what UK maintaining a veto means with Steve in a minute. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think because I... I have some but, strong views on the veto. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it's not that the UK actually the UK has a veto. It's that every member state has a veto actually because it's it's done by unanimity. Yeah, it's because it's done by unanimity. So it's not special that the UK. It's not protecting no. the UK veto. It's protecting the fact that a member state can can veto it because it's by consensus. Yeah. So there's been a proposal from the Commission for the for the next multi-annual financial framework, the next long-term EU budget. And that phases out all rebates. And most people forget that Denmark, Austria, Sweden, and the Netherlands, and I think someone else, um, also have reba- also have rebates for, for different for different reasons. Um, so uh, the Commission plan is to phase them all out by 2025. Now they're they're objecting to that. Um, so on the politics of it, I, I completely take Chris's point, but. Uh, You've got some member states there who are uh, who are very very pro rebate, and somebody coming a big member state coming back to defend the to defend the rebate generally uh, would be seen as quite a positive in this uh, by them, I think. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the the politics change, and but ultimately le- legally, then the UK has a, a, a veto on this. The UK would have to agree to the the next MFF, the same as every other every other member state. But Chris is right about the, poli- the politics. I mean, it, it's it's daft to say that the UK position in the EU is immediately going to be the same as it was in, say, 2010. Well, it has it has yeah. to be different anyway. You know, we yeah. have to we have to change our. We it have should to be have different. A, yeah, it has to. We have to come with a with a change of attitude, regardless of whether or not they can stop us staying or not. You know that that has to happen. Otherwise, you know, it's pointless. Um, but I, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, I do want to come back on. Is it is this good time to come back on Garvin? I think. Well, well on on <laughs> on, on on vetoes and opt outs. I mean, generally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's the explain what the issue? So so the issue is that like Garvin was talking about um, how when this is Garvin Walsh. Uh, yeah, Garvin Walsh. He was on Cape um, and he really knows his stuff. I'm not gonna not gonna say gonna deny. I've 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 been I've been completely trans trans transfixed by his uh, his stories, but. Um, he was talking about the UK being a blocking mechanism in the EU, and I think that that is something that we have to get out of our psyche because it's a it's a Brexit argument, it's a lever argument. We're we're only half in, we're only half out. We've got all these these opt outs. We're not really involved. We were never really part of Europe, and that is just simply not true. Um, if you look back at 1961. Um, we were we were completely in agreement with de Gaulle and saying, oh, we should have some intergovernmental version of the EU. I mean, that was the idea: is that we have this this loose confederation of states. That's that's the way we thought it was going to go. In 1965, um, you see, there, some countries want a federation, and we want and Charles de Gaulle, who is you know the single biggest member of the EEC, 
wants a confederation. So we end up with an argument where the, 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 the federation states, specifically West Germany, who want to stay close to NATO and are worried about what the French the French military aspects would put them away from NATO. And bear in mind, they're, they're on the border with East Germany. They say, we, well, OK, we can, we can do it another way, but we want Britain in. Yeah. So part of the part of the negotiation to get Britain back in after we'd been vetoed out was that this wasn't going to be a federation. This wasn't going to be some sort of federal uh, institution that's purely federal. Um, and that and th- and that led to a, a sort of a discussion between um, Christopher Soames, who's uh, Nick Soames' brother, and Charles de Gaulle, where they talk about oh Britain will Britain will come in and then they will well, they will make sure that this doesn't become a federation. And this gets leaked, and there's a big thing. And so and then our next uh, our next application fails, and then we we finally in 1972, uh, while we're still while we, we're getting ready to go, they have the the Paris summit, and we agree between us that the EU will be what it is. There is no fixed position for the for the EU. It is what, what we all agree between ourselves. So it's not a federation. It's a, not a confederation. They say it's going to be socialists, and we don't know what it's going to be. So. We were there. To, we were there, basically pushing an intergovernmental position right there. So the EU is both federation and uh, both supranational and it's and it's intergovernmental, and it's supposed to be some sort of mixture where we all sort of agree how this works. Yeah. Um, so the fact that we have taken a position where we the, the position that we were brought in to be, uh, you know, that we've been more towards the intergovernmental side than to the supranational. Yeah, that that, that was the point. That was what. That's why we were in there. That's why that's why we were asked in there. That's one of the reasons that we were there. So you see, we work. It's not that we've been blocking. In fact, we don't. I don't think we block European integration that much at all. Um, but you see things like um, in you know th- there are several countries involved in this. If you look at the um, uh, at the uh, the Do Committee in 19, 1984, uh, they wanted to expand QMV and it. We voted against it. Ireland voted against it. Greece voted against it, and uh, Denmark voted against it. So, and 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 to be honest, France may have done if there wasn't wasn't for the Luxembourg vetoes, because we know that in 1994, when Maastricht was going on, they said, "Do you want to lose the Luxembourg vetoes?" And France said, "Absolutely, no way, we're going to do that." So, you, yeah, the point is that the the UK is not the only the only member state who likes having a veto on things, and on certain things in particular. I mean. Um, the we we always make this assumption we we make the assumption that the UK is exceptionalist and and will be exceptionalist and will want everything to be different for it and and you're right that this is really deeply embedded on our side that we're di- the fact that you know the idea that we're difficult is embedded on our side as well um, and other member states sometimes actually quite often on lots of things. Think, think like think like the UK about things as well. I mean, Denmark's a classic example. Denmark loves opt outs. Do- yeah. Denmark hates Q- hates QMV. You know, so we're, yeah, we're not the only one. Okay, maybe there are some uh, who consider us to be constantly constantly difficult, but we're not. I think the idea that we're not the only one is is really. really oh yeah, true. I mean, and I think we. I mean, we are. I think we are constantly difficult. I think it's an attitude thing. But when you start looking at sort of historically, you start seeing that actually. The, 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 we're, we're, sometimes we're difficult in an intergovernmental way in wanting that intergovernmental thing, but that's what we're there for. That's what we were asked to be there, and that's what the EU is. So when you get to the opt-outs, when you get to Schengen, and this is a really important one, and people have to understand this, 
Um, Schengen was invented outside of the EU. It wasn't part of the EU. It was a. It was a. Um, it was an international treaty that other countries were involved in, and they decided that they wanted to bring Schengen into the EU. And that, and that sort of makes sense because um, it, it, it helps create common travel areas. You know, it, it, if you're if you're bordering another Schengen country, it makes sense. So if you look at the EFTA countries that are bordering other um, EU countries yeah. that are in Schengen, actually, it makes a lot of sense to be in Schengen. Um, we weren't we weren't bordering another country with Schengen. We were bordering Ireland, and Ireland didn't want Schengen either. We had a, we had a military border probably at the time, or we had you know at the t- at the time it didn't make a lot of sense for us. Um, they the, so when the when the um, uh, presidency was looking at bringing in Schengen, they spoke to various different member states, and they and the members certain member states said no, we don't want this. It's it's that simple. So under the under the understanding that we developed the European project together in unanimity by 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 in theory that stops you know not everybody wants it you know we don't go any further it, that's that's just the way it works you know but the presidency said we cannot even before they'd made the decision on Schengen they said we are go if we're going to have Schengen we're going to have to make this optional so before Britain even opted out this was optional um, and yes, it was optional on the basis that Britain said they didn't want it. But the op- the other option for the EU was just not have it at all. And the know, Euro- but the but the, U- but the euro was optional as well because you have to meet criteria to meet the euro, which is very easy yeah. to miss as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but just just a second. When we 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 so we opted out of Schengen and Ireland opted out of Schengen. Um, if we were in Schengen, if we as an island with, that's not bordering another island, it basically amounts to less security. There's very little. In Schengen, it's the, that's there. If you're if you're coming into the Schengen area, you get to go through less border checks. That means you get, you know, if you if you're a security risk, you you get checked less. That's all that means. It's not mm. that ours, ours are particularly good. It just means that there's less checks there. Um, Ireland's not in it. We're not in it. Doesn't make any sense for us. We said we didn't want to do it. Um, then we have the um, uh, ah, the uh, security security framework. Uh, which is we opted out of and then opted in for everything that wasn't Schengen. So, so again, you're in this position where this was this, Schengen was something that we didn't so much opt out as we didn't block. We could have said we don't want it. We don't want any, we want a pure Europe where everybody has got the same stuff. But it's because we were able to to say, okay, fine, you can go ahead. Yeah, because we could have blocked be it. We're not going to block it. Yeah, we could have blocked it, but no, because we right. didn't but, do look, that. That that is the that is the reason that we have Schengen in there, and why we, why we have another opt out is because we said you can go ahead with Schengen. That's that's two other opt outs. You've then got the um, social chapter, and I don't understand that opt out at all. Even even now, if it's a clarification, then that shouldn't be an opt out. The the commission should just be making that clarification across everything else. And if it's if it's not actually, oh, I couldn't care less. <laughs> if if we lost that opt out, I'd be like, yeah, I, I'm not. There was a concern that some well, people it's, it's might... it's party political. Yeah, it, there's a concern that people might... that there were some companies might try and sue. Well, they didn't... So, you know, actually, I, I really just don't care about that. But the Euro, we, so, we, we signed up for Monetary Union in 1973. We were in the process. We were in yeah. EMU. That is, that is the problem I have with the Euro, is that we were... We signed up to being part of that. It's not that we we opted out. We actually to being when part we of that process, yes. yeah yeah when we when we signed into the Euro, into the EEC, 
uh, monetary union was part of that. So we, so that was that was sort of us, but that was still on our that was still on our political program for nine years. Nine years this country decided before this country decided yes it wasn't going to go into the and people forget the that there was a discussion between you know an ongoing thing between the prime minister and the chancellor about whether we should join the euro or not. You yeah, know, yeah. There were people in government who thought yeah, we should join the euro. Yeah. Okay, can, I, can I come in here? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, I mean, I, I, I think I think a lot of... I, I, I don't disagree with most of what you're saying, um, Steve, but I think I, I think that there's some conflation going on here. And, um, I think you're, 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 of course, absolutely right to say that um, the UK is not the only member state that... Um, favours intergovernmentalism over federalism. I mean, that's, that's obviously true. I mean, for me, the divide there isn't between the UK and everybody else. The divide there is between the EU institutions yes. and the member states. And yeah, this yeah. is a discussion we've had many times. And, yeah. of course, Steve and I had a long conversation about it um, in our federalism episode. So, I mean, there's that. But then I think the point that Garvin was making was, was slightly different. It wasn't about intergovernmentalism versus federalism. It was more about, well, is the UK an awkward partner? Is it obstructive or, or is it collegiate? And, I'm, and I think he has, he, has an, he has some merit in what he's saying. So let, let, me, let, me, let me just finish um, my, sort of mapping out my, my argument. I think on, on the one hand, there's this um, attitude that Having been in Whitehall, I, I, I see the UK um, entertains of itself, which is that it is transactional, yeah. it is pragmatic, it is short term. It's not communitaire. And yeah. It is not communitaire. But it's not simply, but that, that, the communitaire harks back to the federalism discussion. It's not even about it, it's more on case by case, it's case by case. It, is, it doesn't yeah, it build, um, it doesn't. It doesn't view things with with the long. With, it doesn't take the long view, and it prides itself on that. Well, I mean, I would argue that that's actually not particularly strategically wise, and has got us into trouble over the years. <laughs> yeah, um, but, so that's that's one aspect of, of, of the UK attitude. But um, and and that's a kind of exceptionalism. So that that then ties yeah. into exceptionalism because the, again the UK isn't the only exceptionalist country in Europe. In fact, that's part of the European character. Most European member states are exceptionalist in one way or another. The other one, I suppose, that is most like the UK in that respect is France. But French exceptionalism manifests itself in a completely different way. Yes. French exceptionalism manifests itself in terms of well, we're really the hegemons of Europe. And we really ought to be calling the shots here, and we really ought to be yeah. uh, French. Really ought to be the language of the EU because we're really the European hegemon. I mean, I mean we're massively oversimplifying yeah, here. Yeah. My apologies to my French friends, and, but yeah, um, British exceptionalism has been well. We're not actually European. We don't really have a shared history. We don't really have a shared culture. That's that's, that's where that comes from, and that, that, that it's tr there's an element of that. We know that. That's, this is where Brexit's come from. But yeah, so, but the, the, no, the final, final, final. Um, I think the final point here is that um, the British have often played an obstructive yes. role. But I see that as a party political issue. I see that as a particularly Tory problem since the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. I think before that it was more of a Labour problem. But since the, the, the late 80s, it has been an essentially Tory problem. You know, the UK yeah. during the 1980s, for example, was one of the drivers of European integration with the single market. 
And I mean, that's become almost a truism, but it is true. Yeah. The UK was driving the, the, the development, the, 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 the Europe's emergence from eurosclerosis, and, 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 and it's morphing into a real economic superpower. Um, and then in, 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 in the 90s, in the late 90s and, and the early 2000s, you had the UK as a driver of EU CFSP and EU taking um, positions um, for the responsibility to protect and so on. So the UK has played uh, very positive integrationist roles in the EU, not federalist, not yeah, communitaire, yeah, yeah. but integrationist roles Finger in the EU. digital as well, very, digital yeah, very yeah, recently. yeah. But, but the issue is that on certain areas, um, there have been British red lines which have been, um, they're not, they're, they call themselves transactional, but they're also ideological. And that now, of course, has, has, has just blown up into, into Brexit. Okay, well, so, okay. Let, me, yeah, let me come back on that, because Garvin was talking yeah. about um, a lack of integration, um, and he was using the Western European Union as an example. Um, and he, later on Twitter, he said that we would be we would have been in the Western European Union earlier. Uh, the Western European Uni- Union would have been uh, in the European Union earlier had it not been for the UK blocking it. Now we were pushing for integration in the Western European Union, even though we were arguing it shouldn't be in the European Union. So there's another argument here about Britain integrating in Europe, but where does that belong? Does that belong inside the EU, or does that not? And in in respect to the Western European Europe, uh, Union, the Conservatives were pretty clear that that should be outside. And there's good reasons for that too. Turkey was in the Western European Union and not in the European Union. If you take the WEU out, out of... If you take the WEU and you put it in the EU, it's not a perfect fit. You've also got countries like Sweden, you've also got countries like Denmark, you've also got countries like Ireland, you've also got countries like Malta. All of these do not fit the WEU being brought into the EU. Um, but we decided we would do that. Tony Blair came in and, and, and finally said, Look, "Yeah, let's do this," because uh, there was there was there was um, reproduction there. So we did that, and we provided opt-outs, and we provided a, a, a multi-phase Europe for the for the countries that were not covered by this. Um, and but the counterfactual to this is, if we hadn't been in the, the European Union we wouldn't have said let the WEU go into the European Union ever it would still not be in the European Union because we'd been stuck where Turkey was because Turkey's now a third country it, it mm-hmm. has to be it, when it was fully involved in the WEU it's now a third country in the in the EU equivalent so we were oh, never going to thought of that yeah the, the UK mm. was never going to say oh well okay you can put the WEU something that we've helped create into the European Union will be a third party. Now, now let's let's trans let's move that over to the European Space Agency, for example. Now, say for example, we had a decision about the European Space Agency. Now, there's there is um, redundancy between the European Space Agency and the European Satellite Agency. Now, what happens in the future if someone says, "Well, here's a good idea. Why don't we move the European Space Agency <laughs> to the EU?" And the UK says, "No, it doesn't." That's only possible if the UK is in the European Union. Mm. So mm-hmm. we have been. It's not that we've been. We have been we have prevented this integration in terms of where it belongs. We were still pushing for integration in the WEU, but just where it belongs. The issue is um, where it belongs, and then if we were outside of it, then actually the WEU doesn't end up in in the European Union at all. Um, I think there's a I, I think there's a point mm-hmm. I think there's a point here going back to uh, what both of you said before about the perceptions, the self perception of being difficult and the EU's perception of the UK being a, being a difficult member 
I think there's a perpetuation of the two. There's a perpetuation of the two things here that. Well, a Spanish, a Spanish friend. I think I mentioned it before on the podcast. But yeah, really yeah. Have to <laughs> on me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who, who, you know, keeps saying, "You got every, you know, you you got everything you you got everything you wanted. We don't get everything we want. You you kind of got yeah. everything you wanted." Um, hmm. And she was annoyed. She was basically annoyed with mem- other member states for including her own. Actually, with for for, hmm. for giving in all the time, giving in all the time. Um, but yeah, but that's not the whole. That's not the whole. As you say, that's not the whole story. There's been elements where the UK has been the driver of the driver of further integration. I think what we're seeing though is the perception, the self-perception, and the perception in others just becomes more and more, uh, yeah. more and more, more and more, more so and more fulfilling, isn't it? Where it becomes mm. just an, it just becomes just an orthodoxy because the working level on non-controversial issues. Uh, the, my experience is that the UK tries to help presidencies get, thing, get things through and, 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 keep, and keep business moving. And actually, the UK, I've certainly found myself in situations where there things that we didn't have strong views about, you know, helping to, being asked by presidencies to help, to, you know, to help out brokering, brokering agreements between others. But... And that, but that it has strong... working groups all the time on lots of different subjects. But, yeah, but it has strong views on some areas where, frankly, it shouldn't. Then, for ideological reasons, like where, like where? Well, uh, where, where you get to um, recitals uh, about um, a, a grander European vision, yeah, or yeah, where, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but, but, where, I mean, the, you know, really, why do you need to? Why do you need to yeah, fight yeah. that? Well, you know, just simply for the sake of it. But when let, let's look at the defence case again. Back to, back to this idea that we're, we're holding that back now. Pesco, we Pesco has officially been held back because the UK didn't want Pesco to go ahead, right? That the, the reason that PESCO was, has been until has, had to wait so long was because out of respect for the UK, they weren't going to go ahead with PESCO. And that, that's all very nice and very well. But if you consider that the, 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 we had a Eurozone crisis and PESCO requires us, all the countries to meet their, their financial commitments to NATO, then actually this wasn't a very good time. If you look at the timeline, <laughs> this is not a good time to be starting PESCO. Oh, by the way, can, and also it apparently needs like 11 to 14 countries for it to be a success. So you're, you're literally relying on 11 to 14 countries in the EU to suddenly say, yes, I would like to increase my spending in the middle of the Eurozone crisis. It doesn't make any sense. It, the fact that the, Europe, the European Defence Fund is just starting now and then PESCO's come as, as after that suggests that even though this was being held back for the UK... It may not have happened anyway. And there's, and there's also the other thing that the UK is quite vocal on these things. And there's a lot of countries that actually are quite happy for the UK to be vocal on these things and quite happy oh, to sit back. Th- this happens a lot. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and like the UK was very strong on the 3Ds, the, the, the US requirement for meeting the NATO, for not undermining NATO. But Germany have law that says that that, that, that they are literally have a, in their law a uh, or in their defence policy about the relationship between the EU and NATO. And if the UK wasn't there, that would be Germany. And I'm not saying that it would be as strong or it would be you know, as ideological, but the stuff that the UK I mean, was pushing well, would have to have been pushed by somebody else. I, I look, I, I, don't, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I don't think that this argument could be pushed too far. Because I, I, in my experience, I think that... You know, it, it is not always the case that other member states hide behind the UK. You know, it can be the other way around as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, that's just the dynamics of the council. No, but that no, but that it's it's something that it's something that's not seen actually outside of the Brussels bubble. That this can happen. That this ha- this can happen quite a lot in the, in that. Uh, 
um, you get you get other other member states support, but they only want but only if you lead on it, only if you take the heat on it. Yeah, they're, but it's not always support, the UK. No, 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 no. But on lots of the things that are very important to the UK, like budget, dis- I mean, budget discipline being uh, one of the one of the highest policy pri- positive policy priorities of the UK uh, for the last ten years in the EU and, um, the, and the Germans, the sorry? Dutch, no, and no, the Germans, I mean, one, the Dutch. No, one, one, the highest. Or one of the UK's highest priorities. I mean, not the UK had it as a, had it as a bigger priority than others. But yeah, yeah. this was this was uh, this was supported by the by by the Dutch. It was supported by the Germans. It was supported by the Swedes. Um, it was supported by the Danes. It was supported by uh, I mean, most of the net contributors except France. But this was but they were very happy for this to be seen as a UK led as a UK-led thing when it came to the MFF negotiations. They were more than happy for Cameron to come back and claim, that, claim this as a victory for the, for the UK. They were very, very happy to do that because they got the, you're not paying more to say to the, to, to say to the uh, electorate, which is, what they wanted to be able, which is what they wanted to be able to say, without having to, without having to take nearly so much political, use up so much political capital uh, in, in the EU. So this happens, but I'm, I'm not saying this, this happens to UK more than everybody else. I'm just saying it happens a lot more right. than people think it happens because you don't see this happening if you're outside the bubble. So yes, I think the, the, I mean, the, the, the big argument here is that um, since, I think since William Hague, William Hague was like pro-Europe but no more Europe, you know, and I think that that's sort of an, an ideology <laughs> that's sort of followed in. That's stuck a bit, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. no more Europe, that we want Europe but we no more Europe and as a result we've ended up... Well, the up, Referendum Act was that. The Referendum yeah. Act basically said, yeah, more Europe equals a referendum. I quite like that though. I quite like the Referendum Act. <laughs> <laughs> it's <a> bad pro-European. Are <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you pro-European? Yes. All these pragmatic pro-Europeans. It's really annoying. Yeah. Really crisp, ideological pro-European. Yeah, yeah. As so, well as pragmatic. But, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think we need to stop. I think that there is this perception that we're big problems and that we shouldn't be there and we don't belong. And actually, that's not true. We do have a bad attitude. I think. I think that there, you know, we've we've gone about things in the wrong way at times. I think we we've done things which could have been for the benefit of all of us but decided to do something that wasn't to our benefit because of some, for some ideological reason i think that we do that i don't think that we can be blamed with that that we can get away from saying that we don't do that but yeah i think that the the argument that we that we're not a good fit or that we don't belong or that we don't have the same ideas or that we're intergovernmental where it's supernatural I, none of those fit in terms of when you look at the history and when you look at how it works when you look at everything else i think it's just a it, we need to get away from this and 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 Make people and understand. Well, often we're saying, often, well, yeah, often we're saying we we are or we were, when we actually mean you know the previous the previous government or the tail end of the yes. Labour government. Yeah, whereas yeah. It, whereas in nine, uh, in two thousand two thousand and one, uh, it looked very it looked very different. I mean, yeah, we had a yeah. unashamedly pro promoting the EU government at that point. So. And, and the- I think I think that's right. I think you have to you have to remember that um, it, 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 it we can't simply talk in terms of. Um, a, a, a static we, a monolithic we here. And the, the party uh, dynamic, the UK's changed. The dynamic part, the party dynamic is part of the democratic process, and it is part of how the EU was expected to work. Yeah. So it, you know, it, 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 we shouldn't be beating ourselves up a bit about it. You know, I, <laughs> there were people complaining. Well, I think yeah, well, I think we shouldn't beat ourselves up about it necessarily, but I think we should accept the we should accept that there's a very very heavy perception. Uh, due to re- particularly recent history about this, and I, I don't think we should be. I don't think as Remain, 
we should be we should give people the impression that we're going to march back in and start to dictating no, but you see a bit of this sometimes, and I think we have to, not just as a Remain campaign, but actually as a yeah, whoever's in like. government, whoever's in government there, we need a period of, of re- renewal and uh, renew, renewed, showing renewed commitment and uh, and reposition, as, as, repositioning yeah. and, ref- and and reflecting on 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 our on our on our future role in this and i think we have to be yeah. kind of we have to be kind of honest i don't as like, you said I to like uh, the remain and, i don't like the remain and reform message no me neither no, absolutely not and the, as you said to boris johnson as you said to boris johnson tonight steve we need to we need to sit the fuck down <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and, and did you and say it, that? And it won't be. And we shouldn't be too pessimistic about this either. It won't. It, it you know, it's not like we're going to be in a in a in a total period of purgatory. You know, the a working, a work, but a, wor- a working level. You know, the UK is still in working groups right now. Uh, the contacts are st- the contacts are still there. At a personal level, people work. At a personal level, people absolutely work together, and that's very important. And uh, and that's. That's continued, even if even even as the UK influence in in those discussions tails off has tailed off dramatically. Yeah. But the relationship the relationships are at a at a, at a working level are are still there. Um, people aren't blaming the UK civil servants, the UK diplomats that they come into contact for this. You know, they, the EU sees this and they uh, they know where this has come from. They read the British press, as we've always as we've always said. So you know, this isn't forever. It just but there has to be an acceptance. It's going to take time. To you know, to rebuild opposition and to rebuild opposition and rebuild, rebuild. Hopefully, a hopefully a different and better role in it as well. It's an opportunity for that. Mm. I think. Yeah. Listen, um, guys. I think we need to wrap up. Um, we haven't done <coughs> lie of the week, Chris. Though. Um, There's so much. Um, I'm, I'm going to give a lie of the week though, very very quickly. <coughs> Theresa May's letter to the nation. Oh That's yes, it. we don't have to talk about it. Well, we did that thing. last week. I wasn't uh, here though. Yeah, but we did do it last week. Yeah, it, and it wasn't lie of the week then, was it? <laughs> well, yeah, there we go. It gets lie of the week. But well, okay. Well, yes, it was. Well, the, well, the speech on the motion was basically an expansion of that, and all the talking points we've been using this week. Okay. So we can put that. We can we can put that in because there was some there was some corking whoppers in that, particularly that she conti- she is continuing even now to say that the rights of citizens are are protected. And we and the, and she said today that their lives can carry on as before. Not even mm. she's qualified that before saying, uh, you know, practically as before or uh, or um, uh, essentially like before and things like this. She didn't well, even qualify. She didn't even qualify there. And this this is a pervasive lie. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think I think that's the lie of the week. Is the, the evidence that she gave in committee, wasn't it? Where she where she where she s- yeah. s- sat there and said, bold. You know, quite boldly to uh, it was Peter Wishart. Yeah. Um, no, he, when he's, he challenged her yeah. on this, are, are the rights of EU citizens going to be negatively affected? No, she said, which was a lie. It and was she, a lie, and she tried to she, she tried to indicate were. that UK citizens would retain all of the freedoms that the they point. get from yeah. freedom of movement. That, 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 that there the would be no reciprocity. She, 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 made the, she pretended that there would be no reciprocity. Well, no, I think when, we, when she must know, as the country's longest-serving Home Secretary, she must know but it's that the, the EU's, the common visa policy of the large organisation of which you're a member, yeah. is based on reciprocity. How can she not know that? And also, but also it's, it. it's, in the, it's in the political declaration. 
It's in the political declaration that she's telling that this will be based on the, the UK. It's not known what the UK's policy will be, but that that will be reciprocated by the EU. We can find the reference yeah. to that. It's Maybe she hasn't read the political declaration. It's, a, it's absolutely, it's absolutely there. It's, un, it's unarguable. And she attempted to say that by negotiating continued access to Erasmus, young people would still effectively r- yeah. retain freedom of movement. It was absolute yeah. nonsense. And yeah, that's yeah. a lie of the week. Yeah. I'll do. Yeah, yeah, I'll um, do. I'll get so angry I won't sleep if we keep going on that. So. Yeah, no, quite. Well, this time next week, God knows we may have we may have a withdrawal agreement. Oh God, it's pretty unlikely, but it is pretty unlikely. Thank God, but it could. It could happen. So, I don't want to think about <laughs> it. On that bombshell, I just <laughs> don't want to think about it. Yeah, on that bombshell. I've been literally got bomb- buried my head in the sand. It's not happening. I'm just. Steve's. Thank you both. Yeah, stay positive. I think we've, we've got more calls to be positive. The probability of Brexit not happening is the highest it's been uh, yeah. since, since, since the referendum. We can argue yeah. about what it is, but I think it's clear that it's the highest it's ever been, at yeah. least of getting a people's vote. So yeah. uh, we should be positive, but we have to keep pushing. You have to keep pushing to the last minute in these things. Yeah, but it's all heading in the right direction, so... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, all right. Oh, wow. On a positive note, Cake Watch never ends on a positive note. I know. Wow. Yeah. I think my wow. first maybe time ever. Thirty fourth episode. Maybe because this was the second time round. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. <laughs> well, thanks very much, everyone, and uh, good night from from me. And uh, good night. From good me. night from me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, good luck. What first will happen? Going up the wrong way. Going to have to stop. A secret was They can't expose them all Going up the wrong way We're going to have to stop A series of A natural loss They can't